through Ruth, starting today. And if you love going through books of the Bible at CIC, um, because we believe that God's Word is our authority, it's our instruction, it's our guide. It sits over and top of who we are, and we look to it for guidance. We also have a tradition at CAC, not a hard one, but we try to do both Old Testament books and New Testament books, so we're not stuck in one, uh, one area the whole time. So if you don't know, the Old Testament is all the books in the Jewish canon leading up to Jesus, and then you have the New Testament, which is comprised of the four Gospels, four accounts of who Jesus was, and then letters from the apostles, the people that Jesus trained going forward. So we're going to be starting doing an Old Testament book this week, which is the book of Ruth. And we believe that all scripture, though, is, as it says in 2 Timothy, that all scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. And there is a small link between the book of Ruth, which we are starting today, and Matthew, which we just finished. Um, in Matthew's genealogy, chapter 1, he traces the lineage of Jesus back from Abraham to David, David to Jesus. And if you look at verse 5 in Matthew, chapter 1, it says, Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. That's in Matthew 1. So there is a link there. So with Ruth, the author is technically unknown, um, but people from the, the Jewish Talmud and many scholars today believe that it was Samuel who wrote the book of Ruth because um, the genealogy at the end of Ruth, which will show leading up to King David, somebody, it must have been somebody who knew enough about the importance of King David, and Samuel was the one who uh, anointed David as the king. So he was aware of the importance of King David because God told him this is the person. So he is a likely author um, of, the, of the book of Ruth. And it's a short four-chapter love story, and it points to God's bigger love story, but we're going to go ahead and get started into it. So if you have your Bible, turn to Ruth. Ruth, Ruth chapter 1, 1 through 7. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. So many of you know my story coming to Kuwait, but if you didn't, 
Um, I came to Kuwait in 2008 myself, and so it's been almost it's been almost 14 years I've been here. When I came, there were things in my life that I um, was struggling with. I was very unhappy with my job. I had a great job, a job that could have led me to retirement. Like had a, had a pension, I could just work 30 years, it had been done, but I was unhappy. I was fighting, I was, I was a music teacher, I was fighting with students, I was fighting with parents, at the band Boosters, and all these people. It was just a very difficult time in my life, and I was like, I am not happy. My wife was also working, but she worked an hour and a half away, and it was, so that was a struggle for her to like commute an hour and a half each way to work. Um, we had friends, we had a church, we were involved, um, but some of those relationships after university, because my first job after college, they started to fade, people started going back to the other places. We felt kind of like a little more lonely. Um, I also, both of us felt a little restless. We're like, we're thinking we're young, there's this opportunity. Um, you know, we don't have kids yet, so we want to see what it's like to travel and live somewhere different. Well, well we can, or we're still mobile. <laughs> Um, and a job opportunity arose. Um, there was a job that allowed us to both teach at the same school so we could have each other for support. So I was like, okay, that's a, that's a good idea. It's a good sign that if we can, in case it's horrible, we can depend on each other a little bit. And it was horrible the first year, but that's not my story. Um, we also looked for a church before we came. It was really hard to find one. This is 2008, so the iPhone, was just invented. There was websites for churches, but they were not big. I tried to make phone calls, they were not available. But at least look, it looked like there was a church. Um, and so we did this, and then we had this experience where I had to sit down with my in-laws, because my wife's from, was born and raised and went to university in the same town. Um, so that was a really hard conversation. It was kind of an ending conversation, like, I'm going to take your daughter, we're going to go to the Middle East, we're going to Kuwait. And there were some anger and some tears, but finally some acceptance. And we got on a plane and came here. So the point of the story is that sometimes you have to end things. I had to have that any conversation with my work saying, I'm not coming back, this is my last year, which was very shocking to people. I also had to have that ending conversation with uh, my in-laws saying, uh, we're going. And that was really hard for them. But I, in order to have the new beginning in Kuwait, I had to tie up my loose ends and have those endings. So my sermon title is Endings and Beginnings. And you see, you'll notice several things in, in this passage. The first thing is that there was chaos, right? Um, there was chaos in this time. So if you go back to the beginning, if you go back to uh, Genesis, you have Eve and Adam. They were in the garden. God blessed them. They sinned. They were cursed. They started to die. And God, people started doing their own thing. And evil was in the land. And then God picked a man, Abraham. He said, you're going to have... I'm going to make my covenant with you, which is like a contract, saying I will love you, and I will bless you, and I will be with you. And 
over time, after a long time, Jacob, uh, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and the 12 tribes of Judah, 12 sons, they multiplied and grew into a great nation as God promised. But then they were enslaved by the Egyptians. God raised up Moses, a man to lead them out in this miraculous experience where God led them and destroyed Pharaoh's army, brought them into the wilderness, gave him his law, and said, you're going to go to this land, and you're going you're to conquer it. You're going to win. This is a land flowing with milk and honey, and it's going to be great. However, Moses sinned, and he died. He wasn't able to go. He took his, um, his servant Joshua. He was one who led the people into the land. He conquered most of the armies that were in there, and they were in this land. And then Joshua died, and then there was no king. Um, and then what happened was people, because they did not do what God had told them to do about um, eliminating the people in the land fully, they started committing idolatry. They started worshiping false gods. They started intermarrying, intermingling with the local people. So God had to raise up people, which are called judges. And if you look at the book of Judges, you have people who people sin, they, they get oppressed by their enemies, and then God brings up a judge, rescues them, saves them from their oppressors, tries to bring them back to God's law until the next round, where they fall away again, and God raised up all these judges. And if you go back one page from Ruth, only one page, you'll see where it says, in one of the last verses in Judges, it says, in those days... There was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So this is not a this is not a good thing. This is an indictment against the people. People did what they wanted to do, right? There is no submission to authority. It's like if you combine, um, like, if you imagine like National Day celebration before COVID combined with the Hunger Games combined with riots in the streets. This is how the time of the judges was. It wasn't a good time. It was a very bad time in Israel's history. People were doing whatever they wanted. Right? And it says this twice. It says it in chapter 17 as well. People did what was right in their own eyes. They worshipped false gods like Baal. And it was unsafe. That's the first thing we notice in, in chapter 1. This is a time of chaos. Time of anarchy. And then... That leads me to the question, like, so what, in our, and that's not so dissimilar from our day, right? In our day, we also do not like authority, right? We rebel against it. I have this, I am like that. I don't like people telling me what to do. I don't like having authority over me. But authority is a blessing. Authority is a good thing because it, it allows for rules. It allows for structure. It allows for peace. You know, I just figured out, or am in the process of figuring out, how to be a good worker at work with somebody who is an authority over me. And that is hard. I've just learned that. But if you don't have authority in your life, I think there's, it's, it's, it's chaos is the result. So my question is, who are you submitting to? Right? Parents, are your kids submitting to you? Wives, you're submitting to your husbands. 
Are you submitting to your boss at work? Are you submitting to your commander? Whoever's in charge, there's always an authority structure. And authority is not a bad thing. The Bible says to submit to the authorities. But in that time, what, when you don't have authority, there's chaos, there's anarchy, there's fear. And this is what, what Naomi and their family walked into. The second thing we see is that there was a famine. And famine is something we don't, I don't even understand because I'm so used to feasting and living an easy life and not just my daily bread, but bread for the week, bread for the month, right? Famine is something that's like, what is famine? Um, it, in those days, they didn't have refrigeration, so if the crops did not grow well, you starved, right? And, and this, is a, this is a land of, in a time of famine. And even now, if, after post-COVID, you know, there's like supply chain issues. And I remember at the beginning of COVID, there was like a, a run on toilet paper, at least in the U.S., People were losing their mind because they were stocking up buying house full, full of toilet paper. And that is just a small, that's not even a big deal. So this is like wide-scale famine in the lands. And it's also interesting that there's this famine because it's the promised land. Is this not a land flowing with milk and honey, right? As it says in Exodus, that's what God promised, a land flowing with milk and honey. And I've been to Israel a couple times, and it is a great place to grow. It's Mediterranean. Summers are cool but not cold. Uh, winters are cool but not cold. Summers are warm and not miserably hot. Perfect climate to grow things. So it seems like um, why would there be a famine? And Bethlehem itself means the house of bread. So where they're from, in the house of bread, there is no bread. There is no food. And I believe this is because there's because of the, the time they were living, the time of the judges, because of disobedience and anarchy and chaos, there's God can bring judgment, right? And God said this to his people. If you look back in Deuteronomy 28, it says, this is if you don't obey me. He says, the Lord will make the pestilence stick to you until he has consumed you. And it says, he will strike you with drought and with blight and with mildew. So I think there is a, this famine that's happening because of the general population disobedience and falling away from God during this time. Now, I'm not saying that all evil in your life is disobedience. Um, there's things that happen in our lives that God wants to grow us. I've told you this story before, but... You know, my wife and I were struggling with infertility for nearly 10 years. I don't think that was because of some sort of disobedience that we weren't obeying God in some specific area. So I don't think that. And for you, there might be struggles in your life that are not connected to disobedience. But sometimes God does do this. God does bring things into our lives to change us. He disciplines us for our good. God will sometimes cause us pain to minimize future pain, right? Pain now is probably better than pain later. It's just like if my son wants to stick his fork in the socket, I'm going to smack his hand, causing him pain and to cry, but saving him from much worse future pain. 
One quote from C.S. Lewis, a 20th century theologian, said that God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our consciences, but shouts in our pain. Shouts in our pain. So sometimes, my question is like, you need to check in your life. Are there situations in your life where there is disobedience? And if that's a source of your pain, you know, where, in what area in your life is there a famine? What things are not going well? What do you need to put in your life to not have a spiritual famine? Is it prayer? Is it reading the Bible? Is it getting together with other Christians? Do you need to put things in your life that are not there? So whatever it is you're thinking of right now, that's probably the thing God's speaking to you for. So we see chaos. We see famine. We also see failure. Right? So what they do when there's a famine is they go into the country of Moab. Moab was not like the neighboring, friendly country next door. These were God's enemies. Okay? These were people that God told to wipe out. They had a false god named Chemosh, right? That was like a demon god that did all kinds of, was self-sacrifice and sexual immorality was part of the religion. Moab attacked and subjugated Israel early on in the book of Judges until God raised up a judge to deliver their people from their suppression. Additionally, so not only did he go there, but they, he had his sons take Moabite wives. And this was expressly forbidden in the Old Testament. It's, and it says in the Torah, When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it, you shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Right? Elimelech means God is my king. But you see, Elimelech in his mind, he's thinking, I'm the king. I will do what I want to do. I'm in charge of my destiny. Right? This is, this is, a, this is a failure in taking his family away from God's people. For ten years, it says. Imagine not going to church Imagine that Christian fellowship for 10 years. How would that, what would that do for your, for your life? For your spiritual walk? And yes, Elimelech provided for his family. And for, for you men, like it is good to provide for your family, but provision is more than just material. Provision is spiritual as well, right? If you are just putting food on the table but you're neglecting your spiritual health, you are doing more harm than good. Right? If, if you yeah, if you took your family here and there's no church, thank God there are churches. Thank God that there is a, a spiritual provision here. This church and many other churches that worship God. Um, but if you are providing for your family, you need to provide for your spiritual needs of your family, not just the physical needs. Right? And quite can be very similar, right? Many of us come here for a better job, for more money, physically, physically providing. I've also seen, I've been here a long time, I've seen many people shipwreck their faith here. They come here, they start making money, they start tutoring on the side, 
all of a sudden they they join women's rugby and they don't go to church anymore and then they're like they they walked away from the faith because they think Kuwait is a place to provide for us physically but not spiritually. You can make a lot of money here, but you can also lose your soul here if you're not careful. So are you getting the care beyond food that you need? Are your children getting support from other Christian kids and adults? For men, does your wife have other believers that she can love and be loved and encouraged in the Lord? Are you getting the fellowship time that you need to grow? Now, it's, I'm not saying it's a sin to come here. It's definitely not. Many people, God has called them here. But I have had Christians literally tell me, I came to Kuwait to run away from all my problems. And I told that person, and I told other people, they, maybe you should, you should not be here. Maybe this is not where God has called you. If you are only here to run away from your problems and make a quick buck, this is not, this is not good. This is not, should not be your home. Not that it's wrong to make money. Not just that it's wrong to travel and see the world. Those are all good things. They're fine things. But you need to make your endings before you have a new beginning. I had another friend who came to Kuwait for one year. All he did was drink Pepsi and go to Ruby Tuesdays. He hated the people. He hated the land. He ended up just leaving after a year because he just wasn't, he, he, he wasn't invested in it in any way. Clearly, God did not want him to be there. And so, that's for, for my family. It's for the single people. This, the, the situation with Melon and Kilian, it, it applies to us today. Don't date locals, right? I mean, I've seen, I've seen this many, many times. Especially, especially women. Single women need... Men. I know a woman who was 50 years old when I first came here. She got married to um, a local, married for 50 years, had several children, but she was so miserable. She fought her husband on everything, on raising the kids, on going to church, on church activities. Her whole marriage was a battle. Um, every aspect of her life, until she finally just left. She just like, I can't be here anymore, and she left. And this is just not my words. This is what it says in 2 Corinthians. It says, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has unrighteousness with lawlessness? Has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Baal? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? Marriage is a lot of work. It's a great blessing. But... Think of it, it could be so much harder, impossible, if you are unequally yoked with, with, with an unbeliever and you're, you're the core of who you are was a battleground. So don't do that. Um, ask Christians into your relationships. You know, when Stephanie and I were dating, we had a Christian couple of, before we came here, which is older, much older Christian couple. They're about 30 years older than us. They had kids that were our friends. But we ask them to look into our relationship, look into our lives. You know, you can come to Kuwait and think that you're a shielded, you're, you're anonymous. That's a bad thing. That's not a good thing. It is good to get uh, oversight. Like I talked before about submission. And we submitted our relationship to them, and they blessed it, and they had feedback for us, and it helped 
sustain our dating life and our marriage. And for parents, as your kids grow, you should be looking into their lives and their future. It's not just 18 years out the door. You have a responsibility to help your kids find a spouse that will honor the Lord or will be a suitable partner for them. So, we saw chaos, you know, in the land of the judges. There was the famine. There was the failures of Elimelech. And then finally we see death. Elimelech dies. We don't know why, but I think obviously something to do with, with the judgments, with maybe God not being pleased with him. And so that leaves Naomi in a vulnerable place, right? She's in this foreign land with a foreign God and foreign people, and she has no husband anymore. But she has her sons, except for not for very long because they also die, right? Um, their names actually mean weakling and failing is the, is the Hebrew of their names. And they also die. So we've got these difficult circumstances, chaos, famine. There's the death of all the men in that family. And this is why I like the Bible, this honest. It doesn't say, like, it's not always roses and flowers and joy. This is a rough time. They're in a rough path. And this is one of the key interpretive issues in Ruth. Is that we see in Matthew, we saw God's hand of miracles. We saw God coming down through Jesus and, you know, uh, raising the dead, giving people sight, giving people food miraculously. We saw Jesus rose from the dead, demons being cast out. That's God's hand of miracles. But we also see, we'll see this primarily in the book of Ruth, is God's other hand of providence. He's causing things to happen. He's moving, but we don't see God in any miraculous way reach down. Like, God does not zap Malon and Keely with lightning bolts. We don't know how they died. They just died. But in, in my life, I love miracles. I believe in miracles for today. I've seen a couple miracles in my life. But the most way that God works in my life is through this invisible hand of providence, working through my decisions, my wants, my desires, my mistakes even. God works this way, and you'll see him work throughout the book of Ruth. And finally, after all these terrible things, they see hope, right? There's the end of the family. She hears this rumor that, hey, God visits people again. Back in Bethlehem. There's food there now. And she realizes maybe this is hope, right? It's like uh, she sees there's this opportunity to leave. And you know, things in Moab were not working, right? Clearly they're not working. Right? Their whole family, half their family dies, all the men die. And that's very true for our lives today. Sometimes we have loss, we have pain, we have difficulty. Sometimes God wants to persevere through that and endure to walk through the valley. But other times God is saying, maybe there should be an ending, right? Like with my situation with coming to Kuwait, I felt like it, it seems like there needs to be an ending here before it can have this new beginning, right? There's a time to double down and persevere. There's also a time to cut your losses and be like, this isn't working anymore. And we are very stubborn people. I am so stubborn. 
my wife will tell you that we will have conflicts. Even though I know I'm losing, like I, I'm doing the wrong thing, I will double down and I will fight hard because I know I'm smart, even though I'm wrong. Right? I'm a stubborn person. We tend to justify our own decisions. We're all really great at that. Justifying what I do is the right thing and the best thing. But sometimes we need to be like Naomi and be like, okay, God, uh, this is not working. It's not working for me. And you, sometimes you have to have these ends, these endings before you can have a new beginning. Right? I've had people in my life, you know, end those things that are killing you so God can give you a new beginning. I've had people in my life, relationships that I liked, but I knew they were toxic and unhealthy. And eventually I had to create strong boundaries and eventually end the relationship. And even now, there's things in my life that will be super vulnerable. Like I know that my, over COVID, I have, I gained quite a bit of weight and I'm not liking that anymore. So I'm ending some things in my life, some of the eating patterns that I used to have. I'm not in Bethlehem yet, but I'm trying to get out of Moab now. And I'm trying to make new habits so I can be healthier and, and stronger in that way. So this is a love story, and this is a love story, but you see the beginning, and this is points to the biggest love story of all, Jesus coming down for us, living a perfect life and dying in our, our place for our sins. And even though and even though there are God's people, and we are God's people, we believe that, God's going to want us to end end things before we can have a better relationship with Jesus. Right? One of the first trials that most Christians go through is like, okay, I have all these non-Christian relationships. I need to end them. Because my life of partying before I was a Christian is, need, something needs to change. You have to have those endings. You have to give up that old life before you can have Christ's new life sometimes. So don't wait. Don't wait. I've heard this before. The best time to start is 10 years ago with any change. The second best time is today. Right? Second best time is today. Any of those things in your life, don't let your life be ruled by chaos, famine, mistakes, and death. But anyone needs to end to have that new beginning. Let's pray. Let's just take a moment and just listen to God see what he says about what things you know they need to end. God, we come before you humbly. Are there things in, in my life, are there things in our lives that need to end so we can have a new beginning? Help us to have the courage that Naomi did when she realized that things were not working in the land of Moab and starts her return to Jerusalem. I pray that you bless each and every one of us. That you would show us where you want things to change, where you want us to grow, where you want us to change. We want to have a freshness to our lives. We want to have a new beginning. And I pray that you give this to us. Thank you for all these men and women. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.